So we are um, in, I think, the third week of a sermon series that we're doing called Lost and Found. And again, if, if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that there's this theme that runs throughout Scripture of lostness and foundness. Um, you know, obviously, um, when Sarah, Beth, and Kim read this morning the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus said that here's what I came to do. I came to seek and to save those who are lost, right? That's part of what he came to do. And so the first week of our sermon series, we took a look at how the nation of Israel, after um, they were rescued from slavery, they wandered in the desert for 40 years. They were lost and wandering until God finally brought them into the promised land. And we looked at part of what God was up to in the midst of that. And then last week, Jeff Summers, our assistant pastor, preached on the uh, Gerasene demoniac, which is that story of this um, demon-possessed man who lives in, among the tombs. Um, he's naked. He cuts himself day and night. And Jesus goes and casts these demons out of him and restores him into his right mind. Today, we're going to be looking at another, um, another two stories, ultimately, about lostness and foundness, the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much um, just for inviting these people into this room this morning. And as we pray and talk about in various ways, um, we don't believe that any of these people today is here by accident. And so, Father, we believe that you've drawn them into this place. And ultimately, Father, my prayer would be that the reason that you've drawn them into this room this morning is that they might have an encounter, a life-changing encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in uh, 1977, there was a 49-year-old German man named Erwin Krutz, and Erwin uh, worked at a, uh, some sort of distillery in Frankfurt, Germany. He had seen San Francisco in uh, movies and TV, and so he actually gathered up his life savings, and he bought an, a flight that was going to San Francisco. He wanted to see San Francisco. Somehow that got in his mind. And so the flight from Frankfurt um, went through Bangor, Maine. And so, you know, the flight, I guess, was probably 10 or 11 hours. And admittedly, he said that he had had a few adult beverages on that flight. And so when they landed in Bangor, Maine to simply refuel, his English wasn't very good. The stewardess was getting off of her, ship, her shift. And so as she was leaving the plane, she told Irwin, she said, hey, have a nice trip. And of course, he didn't speak English very well, and so he thought that they had arrived in San Francisco, and so he got off of the plane in Bangor, Maine. And so he walked out into the airport, again, limited English, assuming he was in San Francisco. He hailed a taxi and asked the taxi to take him to, you know, the city. And so the taxi drove him down onto the city, just dropped him off at a hotel there. And so he walked in and got a room and then he went out to explore the city. He found a couple pubs, which as a German, that's, you know, sort of was normal for him. Spent a little bit of time there in Bangor, Maine, and, uh, and he basically sort of explored it a little bit, thought this was great. He went to hail another taxi, and, uh, and this time when he hailed the taxi, the taxi driver realized that he thought he was in San Francisco instead of realizing that he was in Bangor, Maine. And so the taxi driver dropped him off at this little pub. He had a conversation with a waitress. The waitress knew someone who spoke German, and so she called up this German person. The German person came, had a whole conversation with him, found out what in the world was going on, and so basically this German uh, family said, hey, come hang out at our house for a couple days. We'll figure out what to do with you. So he hung out there for a few days. The Bangor, Maine published this in the newspaper. Somebody in San Francisco got word of it, and so they paid for Erwin Krutz 
to finally make that flight all the way over to San Francisco. They flew him on their dollar out to San Francisco. He got a chance to do all the San Francisco things, had a great time. They treated him really well. And then he actually, uh, they put him back on a flight, flew him back to Germany, you know, 10 or 12 days later. When he got off of the plane in um, Frankfurt, or actually in Bangor, Maine, he said, please let me off in Frankfurt. He had a sign that said that. Anyway, point is, it's a, cute, it's a true story. And doesn't he look like just a sweet guy who just... Anyway, you know, the, here's the point. Getting lost used to be a common occurrence. Some of you guys remember all too well uh, that feeling of getting lost. Um, with the advent of the smartphone, I don't know that getting lost happens that much anymore. Maybe, maybe it does. But getting lost, if you remember, those of you who are old enough to remember that, was this anxiety-inducing experience. It was no fun whatsoever. Oftentimes, you'd have to stop at some random gas station, and you'd have to ask for directions. And usually, the direction that you were, directions you were given hinged upon locating random landmarks, like some big oak tree or the house with a broke-down tractor out front, things like that. And inevitably, at the end of these um, sort of uh, directions that involve big oak trees and broken down tractors, they would conclude with the phrase, you can't miss it. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that phrase. And what that meant was there's a 75% chance that you were absolutely going to miss it, whatever it was, right? Okay, often in the middle of finding yourself in that turmoil of being lost, you'd be on the verge of tears. And I say you, not me, but you, um, would be on the verge of tears when some kind soul would offer to lead you to where it was that you needed to go. And so they would hop in their truck or in their car, and they'd say, hey, just follow me. And you'd follow them past the old oak tree and past the house with the broken down tractor out front until you were on the right track again. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a series of stories about lostness and also about being found. Let's take a moment And let's look at uh, the first two of those stories. There's a third that we're not going to get into today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, beginning in verse 1 of Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so these two verses set up the rest of chapter 15. We're introduced to two different groups of people here. We're, on the one hand, we're introduced to tax collectors and sinners, but then we're also introduced to Pharisees and to teachers of the law on the other hand. The first group were, were social outcasts, and the second group were kind of the social elites, at least in Israel. Tax collectors, um, as Sarah Beth mentioned this morning, were seen as traitors to Israel because they were working with the Roman government to exact taxes from their own people, and they often exacted more taxes than they were supposed to. The other uh, sort of section of this group, the sinners, were people who were of questionable moral standing. So they were maybe drunks, maybe prostitutes. Likely, many of them were Gentiles who worshipped Roman gods. Apparently, these outcasts, these tax collectors and sinners, were gathering around to hear Jesus teach. And worse yet, in the eyes of the elite, Jesus was welcoming them, and he was even eating with them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, instead of being thrilled that Jesus was reaching these lost souls, they were filled with contempt for them, and they were filled with anger towards Jesus. And listen to how Jesus responds to them. Back to verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. 
Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what do, what do we take away from these parables? I think the first thing that we take away from these parables is that God cares about lost people, that God cares about lost people. It reveals something about his heart towards the lost. If you ask most people what the opposite of love is, they would probably say hate. That's one of those like, you know, quick responses. But many people have pointed out that uh, the opposite of love isn't actually hate at all, but instead the opposite of love is, is apathy or maybe it's indifference. In other words, you just don't care about humanity or you don't care about individual people and so they become disposable. We've seen that kind of indifference and apathy towards people in many governmental regimes. Um, take the uh, former Soviet Union, for example. And what we see is that communism's track record in the Soviet Union was pretty terrible. Between 1917, which was the Bolshevik Revolution, I've got a picture of that revolution here, and 1987, and so during that uh, period of time, um, and again, in 87 is when Russia committed to uh, a semi-free market economy, but over that segment of time, as many as 126 million people were put to, get to death by the government of the Soviet Union. I mean, just think about that for just a moment, how many people were put to death by that communist regime. I listened to a podcast recently where a, a Russian intellectual was talking about just how much we in the West don't understand how atheistic communism impacted Russian thought. But he basically was making the argument that the Russian leaders didn't hate those 126 million people so much. Rather, communism led the Russian leaders to complete apathy towards individual life. That was the point that he was making. And so if you were in the Soviet regime, what happened is that people were simply seen as expendable. They could be thrown away. And we shouldn't be surprised because if there's no God, there's no moral standard. And if there's no moral standard, there's no right and there's no wrong. And if there's no right and there's no wrong, then ultimately all that is left is power. Fortunately for us, human beings are not entirely logical. There are many moral atheists and there are many immoral theists. Fortunately, maybe more fortunately, definitely more fortunately, is that God cares about all people, but he cares especially about lost people. We see that in both of the parables that we just read. The shepherd in Jesus' story doesn't say, hey, no big deal, I've still got 99 other sheep. What's one to lose? The woman who loses the coin doesn't respond to her loss by saying, I've still got nine others. And though we didn't read it today, perhaps the clearest picture of God's heart for lost people is found in the third parable in chapter 15, which tells a story of a lost son and a father who watches and who waits desperately longing for his son to come home. And of course, the most famous verse in all of Scripture makes the same point about God's heart. 
We read this in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The point of these stories, the point of so much of scripture is to remind us that God cares deeply about lost people. We know from scripture that God cares about the poor. He cares about the widow. He cares about the orphan. He cares about the alien. I believe that he also cares about people who are addicted to alcohol, people who are addicted to drugs, people who are addicted to sex. God cares about doubters and skeptics. He cares about those who are angry and bitter. He cares about those people who are fearful, and he cares about those people who have just about given up the lost. I'm sure that this morning some of you would even put yourself in some of those categories. And what that means is that God cares for you, right where you are, even where you are. And to speak with theological imprecision, I'll put it this way, God wakes up in the middle of the night thinking about you. When he's supposed to be working, God's mind drifts to you, wondering how you're doing, wondering if you're okay. God cares for lost people, and that means that he cares about you. So, what we see in each of these stories is that we see the heart of God. He cares deeply about lost people, but we also see something else in these stories about God. He not only cares about lost people, he also pursues lost people. We're going to look at a couple more verses, verses 4 and 8. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Again, Jesus is asking these rhetorical questions. In each of the parables, Jesus is using situations that his audience could easily identify with. Any Israelite would have immediately been able to envision a situation where a sheep is sort of nibbling at the grass with its head down, and it sort of wanders away from the rest of the flock and becomes separated, becomes lost. And similarly, in the ancient Near East, people would have lived in homes without windows. They would have been lit instead by candles and firelight, and so a coin that would have been dropped on the floor, especially a, a floor that would have been covered with straw, which is what a, many of the ancient Near Eastern homes would have had, um, could have, that coin could have easily become lost under that straw in that dimly lit room. As a quick aside, uh, once when we were living on Lookout Mountain in our house, Krista dropped an earring onto the floor in the living room, and it completely disappeared. We scoured the entire room, but we couldn't find it anywhere. It was as if it fell through a trans-dimensional portal. It was totally bizarre. About a year later, I was wrestling on the floor with the kids, and I was laying on my back, and I looked up, and on the underside of a chair, I saw the earring. It's about a foot off the floor, and apparently it had bounced, and the hook had gotten caught onto a piece of thread on the bottom of this chair, and we found it. I mean, what are the chances of that? It was crazy. Anyway, uh, in each of these stories from this morning, except for the last one, Jesus poses a question to his listeners. He says, if you lost a sheep, wouldn't you go looking for it. If you lost a coin, wouldn't you search for it too? The answer to both questions was, of course. Of course you'd go looking for your lost sheep. Of course you'd go looking for that lost coin. And Jesus' point was that God would too. People created in God's image, that's us, even broken ones, even rebellious ones, even the ones that are keeping God at a distance, those people are infinitely more valuable than both sheep 
and coins. Sadly, that truth was an unwelcome surprise for the religious elite of Jesus' day. Jewish scholar C.G. Montefiore points out that while Judaism allowed for God to passively receive repentant sinners, nowhere in Jewish literature of that time were there pictures of God actively pursuing those very same sinners. Does that make sense? And yet, here we have Jesus making exactly this point, that God pursues the lost, that God pursues rebels and sinners and immoral people. In fact, that's exactly why Jesus had come. We see that point not only in the stories that we've already read this morning, but in Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus, which, again, we read earlier. And what happens there is that um, Jesus goes through Jericho, and he sees this chief tax collector, this, this guy who would have been very, very wealthy and would have been seen as a traitor. And he goes and he says, I've been looking for you. Let me come hang out in your house. Jesus engages with Zacchaeus, and we read this. Today, he speaks, Jesus is speaking to the crowds who were disapproving. And he says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, there are two groups of people that need to hear this truth today, that God pursues the lost. The first group of people are people who are dominated by fear, fear that they've sinned too much and therefore God can't forgive them or fear that they haven't done enough and therefore um, God won't accept them. We could call them the neurotics, if you will. The second group are the people who are driven by pride. We could call them the narcissists. They're the people that maybe don't realize that they are lost and need to be found. Some of you in the first camp this morning, the people who are marked by fear, you need to hear the message that despite your failure to measure up, God is pursuing you today. So let me say that one more time. Despite your failure to measure up, God is pursuing you today. He cares about you, and he wants you to come home. He wants to have a relationship with you for you to be with him. Jesus is all the evidence that you need. That's why he came. Now, if you're in the second group, the group that's maybe more driven by pride, you might need to hear a different piece of this message this morning, specifically that you are lost and that you need to be found. In the words of recently departed Tim Keller, he says this, the gospel is this, you are more sinful and flawed than you could ever dare to believe. And yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared to imagine. God cares about you too, and he wants you to come home as well. You were lost, and you needed to be found. And again, Jesus is all the evidence that you need. So these two stories teach us about God's heart, that he cares about lost people. They teach us that God not only cares about lost people, that he pursues lost people. And then finally, these stories teach us one more thing, which is that God rejoices when lost people come home. I love that Jesus includes this detail in his stories. He didn't have to. But look at the response of the shepherd at saving his lost sheep. It says this, And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Three times in three verses, 
Jesus speaks of joy. The shepherd is filled with joy at bringing his lost sheep home. We see that same joy in the story of the lost coin. We're told this, when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The imagery in both of these stories is that of a party, a celebration. Both the shepherd and the woman in their joy invite their friends to celebrate with them. But Jesus goes even further. He tells us that when one sinner repents on earth, there is rejoicing in heaven. He would know. He's been there. His final story, the story of the prodigal son, makes this point even more clearly. When the young son returns home broken, exhausted, and ashamed, the father covers his nakedness by putting shoes on his feet, a ring on his finger, and the best robe upon his shoulders. And then, at the father's command, the whole town is invited to a party, a party with music and dancing and with a lavish